the Simply Christian Life. My name is Michael Hun, and in addition to being the Bishop of the Diocese of the Rio Grande in the Episcopal Church, I'm also the host for this podcast, and I hope you're enjoying our conversations together. It is Lent, and we are reading the book by James K.A. Smith entitled, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And this episode, we read together chapter four. What story are you in? The narrative arc of formative Christian worship. In chapter three, Dr. Smith was uh, reminding us of the power of Christian worship and the traditional shape of Christian worship and how important that shape is to its formative power over our lives. And now in chapter four, he opens on page 83 by understanding the gospel with your gut. And he writes these words. Because we are liturgical animals, we need to recognize the rival liturgies that vie for our hearts and then commit ourselves to the rightly ordered liturgy of Christian worship as a recalibration and rehabituation project. You won't be liberated from deformation by new information. God doesn't deliver us from the deformative, habit-forming power of tactile rival liturgies merely by giving us a book. Instead, God invites us into a different embodied liturgy that is suffused by the biblical story, but also inscribes that story into our hearts. We're getting very familiar now with the way Dr. Smith contrasts the liturgies of this world, whether they are the shopping mall or even the, in, in our world, I might say, the, the liturgy of the evening news or the liturgy of the political cycle is giving us language that is shaping our hearts and telling us our reality. And Dr. Smith wants to separate those secular liturgies from the liturgy of the church, both in terms of its form and in terms of its content. Because the regular participation in the life of the church actually changes and recalibrates our heart in a godly direction by changing the life that we live. And so in this first part of chapter four, he reminds us about the power of the language of the liturgy itself. And yet again, he uses the Book of Common Prayer as an example, quoting Eamon Duffy, who is actually, a, he was one of my professors back in seminary. And Duffy says, talking about uh, Thomas Cranmer and Cranmer's work on the Book of Common Prayer, Cranmer's somberly magnificent prose, read week by week, entered and possessed their minds, and became the fabric of their prayer, the utterance of their most solemn and most vulnerable moments. And this is what happens as we pray the language of the church day in and day out. It becomes the way we see the world around us. It gives us the language to describe our experiences, both positive and negative. And that leads me to to share with you a story. Perhaps talking about Eamon Duffy made me think about it. 
But you may know that I was I went to seminary and and was uh, prepared for ordination in England at Cambridge University. And while there, I studied with a number of wonderful people, one of whom was named Don Cupid. And if you're a theologian, you know that Don Cupid had something of a rebellious nature and something of a controversial reputation as a theologian because of his academic work. Uh, surrounding what some have called the Death of God movement. He was um, involved in writing and thinking about what happens to the theology of the Christian church at a time when secularization is rising and people are starting to to say God is dead, God doesn't matter. So Don Cupid was very much involved in, in that work. I found him to be a brilliant teacher and a very kind and generous-hearted person. And I want to share with you one afternoon with Don Cupid as a student. I, and and when you when you went to meet with Don Cupid or any of the professors at Cambridge, uh, the teaching was done one on one. And so I would go and I would join uh, Professor Cupid in his um, study. And as we would sit there looking out the window and talking about theology, we would often have a cup of tea if it was in the morning, or, or if it was after 4 p.m., we might have a cup of sherry, a glass of sherry together. And we would talk about the theology that was going on. One afternoon, late in the afternoon, we were sitting together talking about the power of language to shape our images of God. And uh, Mr. Cupid looked out the window, and as he looked out the window, there was this beautiful sunset going on. And, and he said, Michael, I want, to, I want to help you understand the power that language has to shape our reality. So I want you to look out that window, and Michael, tell me what you see. And I looked out the window, and, and I saw this beautiful sunset, and I said, well, the sun is setting? And he said, ah, is that what you see? And I said, sure, it's a beautiful sunset. You know, God's doing a great job tonight. And he said, but is that what's really happening? And I thought for a moment. And I said, well, I do see the sun going down. And he said, but is that what's happening? And I thought a little bit longer. He said, scientifically, what's happening? And I said, oh, I understand, I understand. What, what you're saying is that actually the sun isn't moving, right? I mean, we know from science that the earth is spinning on its axis. And so what happens actually at sunset is that the earth is spinning sort of away from the sun. And we're going to be on the dark side where the shadow of the earth means that we can't see the sun. And so he said, that's right. So what are you actually seeing? And I said, oh, he said, the horizon is rising, Michael. And I said, oh, I, I guess you're right. And he said, but your language for your whole life has taught you to see the sun moving down towards the horizon, when in fact what's happening is the sun is staying still and the horizon is rising. If we taught our children that it wasn't the sun setting, but it was the horizon rising that brings night, 
our children would actually see. And he said, and I've, for years, I have thought about this. And now when I look out there, what I'm seeing, Michael, is the sun staying still and I'm feeling the earth rotate back on its axis. But it's only because I've changed my language that I can see that reality. Professor Cupid was trying to get me to see the reality of the fact that the sun is not moving but in fact, if our language tells us that the sun is setting, that's in fact what we see. Whereas if, and, and by telling me with that cue, but what's happening scientifically, Mr. Cupid said, by saying what's happening scientifically, I was getting you to shift your language from what you were taught as a child to see, the sun moving down, to what you were taught in science class to know that the earth is in fact rotating and the horizon is rising. By shifting your language, we shifted what was possible for you to see, Don Cupid told me. And that really is, has been powerful all through my life. He, he would go on to talk a lot about how you, when you learn a different language, whether it's a different way of seeing the world, whether it's an artistic view of the world or a scientific view of the world, or whether you're learning French or German or Italian or Spanish, when you learn another language, you don't just learn another set of code. You actually learn another way of looking at the world. You actually inhabit the world in a different sort of a way. And so he also later on would, would tell me about the way colors are described in different languages and that the way your language tells you to see the world actually changes what color you see. It's not that the physical reality shifts, it's that the power of our language is so powerful that it changes the world we live in. And I think that's what Professor Smith is talking about here as he is saying in chapter 4 that as we engage in a regular practice of Christian worship, the world we live in actually changes and becomes more God-focused. And this is why it matters so much how we teach our children, how we teach our children to know and appreciate and understand the stories of the Bible, so that as they encounter their world, they're encountering a world that already has the Bible written all over it, that the Word of God influences the words that they use and the words that they see. Our language, the language that we teach uh, our children, the language of faith can become the reality in which we live. And there are lots of other rival languages out there, other ways of looking at the world that are always pressing in. And so our worship and raising our children in a worshipful environment, raising our children to know those Bible stories, to have those words inscribed in their hearts, changes the character of who our children are. And of course, there are lots of other ramifications of this power of language and how it functions in our world. For example, prejudice and sexism are all about how our language privileges certain people over others and limits other people. There are many scientific studies which show that what I think a person is capable of actually predicts how I'm going to react to that individual. And so it is through our language. If we think, for example, that all girls are a certain way, or we've, we grew up learning that every time I use the word girl, I use these words, 
um, like pretty and kind and quiet or whatever to to use the stereotypical ones and every time i think about a, the word boy i think about things like rambunctious and lively and energetic and uh, boys will be boys whatever that means the language that i use changes what i think people are capable of and if we teach our children that girls are always uh, quiet and docile for example, uh, girls will not grow up thinking that they are strong and powerful and rambunctious. And if we raise boys to think that boys are not quiet and bookish, then they will think that they can't be that thing. But if we raise our children and if we change our language in order to allow a, a wider variety of people to behave in a variety, variety of ways, that actually changes how we engage people in the world and what we think people are capable of. If, for example, we always use the word leader with male pronouns, the leader he, the leader did this, and he, da-da-da-da-da-da, then girls will just automatically intuit that that word leader does not apply to me because I'm female. And, and yet if we deliberately change our language so that when we're talking about scientists and football players, we use the pronoun she, then we will create a world in which uh, girls say, oh, leader, that, that's me. Uh, and, and if we use a word like gentle and kind with boys, they will grow up to think kind and gentle, oh, that's me. Instead of thinking, you know, that, that my behavior is limited to the words that describe um, what boys do. And those words are different from what girls do. So the power of our language is really tremendous. And of course, that power of language also impacts our language in the church, our language of worship, and our language about God. The language I use about God actually changes what I think about God. So, for example, if I think that, um, uh, to, to use that old, uh, I think it was, wasn't it Jonathan Edwards who wrote that book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? If the words I use about God are about an angry God who is out to punish sinners, then I will see the world that way. I will see myself that way. I will see others that way. And if I start to look at the world looking for sinners that God is going to punish, and if when I look in the mirror, what I see is a sinner who God is out to punish, that really does transform what I think God is. But if, in contrast, I understand that God so loved the world that God gave his only begotten son to the end, that all that believe in him might not perish, but have life eternally. If I believe that God created this world out of love and that Jesus Christ came into the world to embody that love, that what God was doing in Jesus Christ was reconciling and uplifting the world, then I will live in a world in which when I make a mistake, I am looking for God's love to make that mistake into something that is healed and forgiven and changed. And when somebody else makes a mistake, even a horrible mistake, even when someone else is cruel to me, if I understand that God is love, and I understand that I am to love others because God first loved me, that will change the way I respond to everybody. 
whether they are cruel to me or kind, because of what I think God is, I will act differently in the world. So the power of our worship to shape our hearts, the power of our worship to give us the language in which to interpret other people's actions, the power of the word of God to change the reality of our world cannot be underestimated. And of course, that means the pronouns we use about God matter too. If I think that God is male, then that may mean that I think men are slightly more godlike than women. But the reality is, of course, that our words about God do not contain God or even accurately describe God. No human word can describe the creator of the universe. But our words about God can change what we think about each other, and they can change what we think is possible for God. So it broke my heart when my three-year-old daughter said to me, No, Dad, God is a man. And I said, what? How did you understand that? And she said, well, everybody says God is a he. And I thought, my goodness, if my daughter thinks that somehow the boys are closer to God than she is, there's something wrong with that. For we are all created in the image of God, and certainly she is. My goodness. And so I think it is helpful for us, and and perhaps it's a It's a helpful theological exercise. As you say your prayers, just swap out that pronoun he for the pronoun she and see what it does to your prayer life. It may open up different awareness of the reality of who God is. And if nothing else, it'll remind you that our words about God are always imperfect and that when I say God the Father, I don't mean that God is a human father like I'm a human father. I mean rather sort of by analogy that God is somehow sort of in a kind of hopefully loving, fatherly sort of a way. So our words that we use in worship, the pronouns that we use for God in worship, the images that we use for God in worship really matter. And we could do more in our prayers, for example, to talk about God as a a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. That's Jesus, by the way, who said that and used that image. We could use other language about God rather than, you know, God is, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, God is out to punish or the wrath of God. The Bible, and particularly the words of Jesus, were filled with intimate and loving language for God. When Jesus said, Abba, Father, that's like saying, Daddy. It, in, it, it was meant to describe, and the way Jesus used that word was, was in a very loving, familial way. And if we use it in that intimate sort of a way, God becomes a loving, caring, guiding Uh, intimately related to us, always loving us, sort of a God. And if I face the world with that sort of God in my corner and in my heart, it will change how I experience you and everyone else in the world. So I think this chapter has opened up for me uh, a lot of time to reflect on the power of our language 
And when I say the word of God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, what I mean is that the word of God is changing the reality of my life. And the more the words I use about God are from the Bible and are describing Jesus as he actually was, the more my world actually changes. The word of God changes this world every single day. The next section of the book is entitled, Worship Characterizes Us. And he says this over on page 86. Christian worship comes loaded with its own vision of flourishing, one that is not just spiritual or ethereal or displaced to a disembodied heaven. The biblical vision of creation's shalom is heavenly, but it envisions a heavenly order that becomes a reality on earth. What Dr. Smith is saying is that the vision of shalom or peace or the heavenly kingdom that we get from Holy Scripture, the vision of God's end for human beings, the purpose for why we're here, that vision which we get from the Bible and which we get from Christian worship is not just about some other heavenly place, but it actually is about our own reality. Jesus did not come just to save our souls in the afterlife. Jesus came to save us today, to invite us into the heavenly kingdom, which is unfolding. And as a, a favorite bishop of mine used to say, the kingdom is inbreaking, breaking into our reality on a daily basis. God is alive for us now. And it is through Christian worship and through the study of Holy Scripture that our hearts and our minds learn the language of faith. And it is that language of faith which changes what is possible for us in this world. Professor Smith quotes N.T. Wright as he writes, The Christian vision of virtue, of character that has become second nature, is precisely all about discovering what it means to be truly human, human in a way that most of us never imagine. And if that is so, there are bound to be overlaps with other human visions of virtue, as well as points at which Christianity issues quite different demands and offers quite different help in meeting them. Part of the claim of the early Christians, in fact, was that in and through Jesus, they had discovered both a totally different way of being human and a way which scooped up the best of the ancient wisdom, the best that ancient wisdom had to offer, and placed it in a framework where it could at last make some sense. What are we here for in the first place, N.T. Wright asks us. The fundamental answer is that what we're here for is to become genuine human beings reflecting the God in whose image we are made. So what N.T. Wright is getting at here is that Christianity is about living free lives, lives in which we are set free from the constraints of this world and what is possible in this world. And we are set free for the purposes which God has in mind for us from the beginning of creation. How does that being set free, how does that liberation take place? How are our hearts recalibrated in order to live different lives? 
We are recalibrated by the word of God in Jesus Christ. The word that was made flesh actually changes our lives. And how do we learn that language, the language of faith, the language of God, the language of Jesus? We learn that through daily Christian prayer and weekly Christian worship. The patterns of the church, the language of the church, the language of the prayers that we say seep into our heart and they change what we see when we encounter the world. So that, for example, if we are walking down the street and we are seeing a person without a home, a person who is grungy and dirty, a, a person whose teeth are bad, a, a, a person who is, is sort of lying there in a, in a hovel and who says, can I have some money? What do we see when we encounter that person? Our society might tell us that that person somehow deserves to be there, that they have made some mistakes in their life, that they haven't made the most of their opportunities, that they need to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps, stop being lazy, and get on with their life. So our society and our culture would tell us that uh, how we encounter that individual. But if our lives and our hearts have been shaped by the stories of the Bible, if our hearts have been shaped by the prayers of the church, it is quite likely that when we encounter a person like that on the side of the road, what we immediately think of is the story of the Good Samaritan. And then we inhabit that story and, and we wonder, am, am I, who am I in that story? Am I going to be the priest who passes by on the other side? Am I going to be the Levite who walks by and, and doesn't help? Or am I going to be the Good Samaritan in this story, in this moment? Am I going to be a person who reaches out to that other person and binds up their wounds and cares for them? How we think of that moment will very much be influenced by the liturgies and rituals that we are taking into our lives. And if we see that encounter with a homeless person, if we see that encounter through the lens of our politics, we may make a very different choice than if we see the, that encounter through the lens of our faith. So the way the faith calibrates our hearts actually changes who we are. And I'm not trying to make this as a political statement. Don't take what I'm saying and put it into that political lens. What I'm trying to say, and what I think Dr. Smith is trying to say, is that the language we use actually calibrates the reality we experience. And so just as Don Cupid asked me to shift my language from uh, seeing the sun setting to shifting my language to an understanding that the earth is rotating on its axis, when we shift our understanding from what we are being fed by our culture, whether, whether your politics is to the left or to the right, it's still our culture that is feeding this idea that you're either left or right. That language is being given to us by a non-biblical culture. And, and what I think James K.A. Smith is asking us to notice is that we can shift our reality into a, a Bible-based gospel understanding of our world and our reality. What are we here for in the first place? If we're here for God, then worship and prayer become our priorities. Over on page 88, Dr. Smith says, The goal of Christian worship 
is a renewal of the mandate in creation that we would be remade in God's image and then sent as his image bearers to and for the world. Another way of getting at this is to say that one of the goals of Christian worship is to characterize us. And Dr. Smith says we are characterized, re-characterized by the Bible and by our worship in two ways. The first way, he says, is we are called to be characters in the story, to play the role of God's image bearers who care for and cultivate God's creation, to be the praise of his glory. And this is what happens to us as we read the Bible and as we follow Jesus, as we make the story of the gospel, as we take our discipleship seriously, we try to live into the gospel. And the more we read those stories of Jesus and how Jesus encountered others in the world, the more we encounter others in the world like Jesus did. We start to look for Jesus on the road to Emmaus when we're on the road to Las Cruces or Tucumcari or wherever, or, or on your way to the office. We start looking for Jesus. If, if we start to, to inhabit the stories, we start to experience the story of the Good Samaritan in our daily life. So the Bible characterizes us by putting us into the Bible story and by putting the Bible story into our lives. Secondly, Christian worship also characterizes us in a second sense. In the rhythms of worship, the Holy Spirit inscribes in us the character that makes us into a certain kind of person. So the characterization changes our character. It changes who we are in our hearts. It recalibrates our hearts. And then over on page 89, Dr. Smith uh, talks about a very important book uh, by Alistair McIntyre. This book was very important to me in seminary a long time ago. It's called After Virtue, and I highly recommend it. Dr. Smith points out that Alistair McIntyre says, I cannot answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I first answer the question, of which story am I a part? What we think we're about changes what the right and wrong choices are. Part of what virtue ethics and that school of thought which McIntyre talks about is about getting in touch with the reality that depending on which game we're playing, what we should and shouldn't do changes. An example of this, which, which I like to think about, is, is to use a sports analogy. So here's the question. It's an ethical question. Somebody is holding a ball. Are you supposed to tackle them? What McIntyre would say is that before you can answer that question, should I tackle this person, you got to understand what game you're playing. So if, for example, the game is football and you're holding the ball, then by all means, my job is to tackle you. But if the game is tennis and you're holding the ball, I better not tackle you. The game that we're playing changes the rules. And part of what Dr. Smith is pointing out here, part of what um, Dr. McIntyre was pointing out, is that the story we think we're inhabiting changes our ethics, it changes our right and wrong, it changes what we ought to do. 
And so the more deeply we root ourselves in the story of Jesus, the more deeply we root ourselves in the story of Christian worship, the more deeply our hearts are recalibrated so that we can enter anew into the world that God has created for us. If I go about the world thinking that I am created a child of God and that this creation all around me has given to me and I am a steward of it, that I am here to care for this world and the other people in it, that the rules of this game are about God's love, then I inhabit the world very differently than if I understand the rules of this game are about um, I must pull myself up by my bootstrap and this is going to be a hard scrabble, competitive, economic, dog-eat-dog, uh, -dog, survival of the fittest kind of a world. And so as we come to an end of this episode, take some time to think about what story you're inhabiting. Is it a scientific story? Is it a political story? What game are you playing? Particularly during this Lent, how might you more deeply inhabit the story of Jesus Christ? How might you invite the Word of God to form the words that are on your lips and the words that are on your heart? I'm Michael Berkel-Hun. Thank you for joining me on the Simply Christian Life, and may you have a holy Lent.